it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. So happy to have you here. It means a lot. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening every day, 3 to 6 Eastern. And if you can't listen live between those hours, those three hours, you can listen on demand for free on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Your one-stop shop for all of it. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something else you might want to consider is following us on social media, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. That's a pretty easy one. And also, my personal handle is at Guy P. Benson on both of those platforms as well, Twitter and Instagram. Here's what we've got for you on today's show. Josh Krasauer will join us later this hour talking politics. Steve Harrigan, one of our correspondents at Fox News, who knows a lot about Russia and has covered a lot of wars and conflicts, he will join us for what I believe will be a really interesting discussion. And Annie McCarthy will be here talking about the Supreme Court nomination fight and the confirmation hearings underway right now on Capitol Hill. I see Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is currently taking questions from Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, and she'll be taking questions for the rest of today and also into tomorrow. Fox News alert as we begin the show, and I'm going to do something that we've done for two years but recently stopped, but there's a specific reason why I'm bringing it back today. I'm going to bring you COVID stats. I had hinted that we were going to move away from giving daily updates on cases and deaths in America because it seemed like our pandemic emergency was over and we were moving toward an endemic situation, which I think is the correct way to go about this situation, given all of the factors at play. And so after two years, we retired that daily feature. But I'm doing it today. Let me give it to you, and then I'll explain why. The case count, officially 79.6 million. That's a very low estimate. The real number is much higher. See that Jen Psaki over at the White House has again tested positive for COVID. She just had it a few months ago. And I'd imagine she is fully vaccinated for sure, probably boosted. She has mild symptoms, wishing her a speedy recovery. But that's round two for her. And she only had it, what, late fall? That is, that's a pretty quick turnaround. So I'm sure her stat counts, but there are many other cases over the course of this two-year ordeal that were never officially marked, so that's a lowball estimate. The death toll is now 791,968, but the official CDC number is coming down dramatically. I'll explain that in a second. The Dow up 219 points at this hour to 34,773. So we resurrected that little tradition because of this update that Reuters has reported on this week 
The CDC, in a statement to Reuters, said it has made adjustments to the COVID data trackers mortality data. They made the change March 14th because its algorithm was accidentally counting deaths that were not COVID-19 related. The adjustment has resulted in the removal of 72,277 deaths previously reported across 26 states, including 416 pediatric deaths, the CDC said. Now, we will focus in on the pediatric number in just a moment. But let's just clarify what's happened here. More than 72,000 deaths have come off the U.S. official total from the CDC because of what they're calling a coding error in their algorithm. Now, that does not change the fact that we are still closing in on a million Americans who have died with or of COVID. And I think there's a very important distinction. We may never really get the full picture of people who died with an incidental COVID diagnosis that were categorized as a COVID death versus people whose death was primarily caused by or significantly caused by COVID itself. Even if you could break that down and only count the people dying of COVID, it would still be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans. Very serious illness that affects certain populations much more dramatically than other populations. Nevertheless, bringing your number down by 72,000 deaths, that is a pretty big number. And with children's deaths, the number is even bigger in terms of the, the magnitude of the shift. All-time pediatric deaths, now quoting from the Washington Examiners, from COVID-19, so pediatric deaths under the age of 18 in America, plummeted nearly 24%. Right, so roughly a quarter of all the pediatric deaths that had been counted officially by the CDC as a COVID death. And again, you've still got the with or of COVID distinction within that number. But as you've heard me say many, many times, the number of children in this country, thank God, who have died from COVID is infinitesimally small. It is minuscule when you look at the broader population. That number was over 1,700 all-time deaths from children ages 0 to 17 just a few weeks ago. It was 1,755. And there were actually news stories that it seemed like child deaths were accelerating during Omicron and there were headlines freaking parents out. Well, a lot of that was due to this algorithm blip, this coding error that they've now gone back and corrected, which has resulted in eliminating one out of four child deaths from COVID or with COVID listed by the CDC in America. One out of four is no longer a COVID death. So the official number now is 1,339 all-time deaths in that age group, 0 to 17, a reduction of roughly 24%. Now, you have to take that 1,300 number, and let's just take it at face value. Let's not try to split hairs, although I think it's actually quite an important hair to split. 
But just for the sake of this conversation, let's not focus in on how many of those deaths were incidental COVID positives versus caused by COVID. And I think that there's a great likelihood that there's a significant chunk of that number that were children dying with COVID. But let's just assume that all of them were children who died of COVID. That is 1,339 COVID deaths of children in America out of 73 million American children under the age of 18. There are 73 million children living in this country. And we've got about 1,300 COVID deaths within that group over the span of two years. Now a little more than two years. And that number, which was already quite low, has been lowered further because the CDC has corrected a bug in their system that overcounted overall deaths by 72,000 across the country and had added a quarter, 25 percent, to the child total, which has now been corrected. And I say this not to downplay the suffering of any of those 1,339 families. No one should ever have to lose a child. It's also unfair to say that it's callous or wrong or mean to talk about risk analysis and public policy. I've beaten this drum for a long time, especially when there are so many known harms from restrictions placed on children related to COVID when they were the least likely people to have severe consequences health wise from COVID. Like they were effectively inoculated by their youth, by their age, by their demographic. Children are almost intrinsically vaccinated against dying from COVID and overwhelmingly from hospitalization from COVID because they are young. So if you break that number down, you're looking at hundreds of pediatric deaths each year from COVID which is, again, extremely heart-wrenching for anyone affected by that vanishingly rare exception to the rule. But vanishingly rare exceptions to the rule do not serve as a strong basis for public policy that is then foisted upon and inflicted upon 73 million children in this country, many of whom were locked out of classrooms for a year and a half, for example, some of whom are just now being able to take their masks off in schools. Some of them still can't. And I'll say it again, if we are going to do risk analyses, both at like the family level, parents making decisions for their kids, but at the public policy level from school districts up to states, up to the federal government and the CDC, the risk of a child, one of the 73 million children in this country dying from COVID or even with COVID, is a lower risk than children dying from homicide, being murdered, which is very rare, extremely rare. Lower than car accidents, lower than drownings, lower than in some recent flu seasons, influenza. We have to keep these things in perspective. There are going to be other waves that arrive, and we cannot go back to outdated, unscientific, previous mentalities that do much more harm than good, specifically and especially for children, which is why I want to bring you the new numbers. 
down overall, the death total among Americans, and down by 24 percent among children to an even more microscopic number. Reuters reports that children have accounted for about 19 percent of all covid cases, but less than 0.26 percent of those cases resulted in death. So, I mean, it's just. So, so tiny, and it's gotten even tinier, which is good news. That is good news for America and for the children and the parents of America. It's not as good news for the people who have been so invested on restricting these kids for no justifiable reason with a bunch of so-called mitigation strategies that did not work and actually did damage to the well-being and development of children. Now, one more thought on this broader topic. One of the countries that has been cited over and over again as having basically beaten this pandemic, beaten coronavirus, is South Korea. If you look at their case trajectory, it's just been a flat line close to zero for two years. And what we've heard is, well, that is a country that has almost like a religious commitment to extreme compliance on masking, on distancing and all this other stuff. Well, there's a new variant that is hyper contagious. There's been very little spread of this disease in that country up until now. So there is vaccine based immunity, but not natural immunity, not much at all in South Korea. South Korea is now being hit by a breathtaking covid spike. I mean, their spike on their new cases per day per capita is now dwarfing even the worst spike that we had here in the United States. It's not even close. One doctor said we had a peak in America that was so high it seemed undwarfable, but it is being dwarfed right now in South Korea, a country where everyone is basically masked all the time. Eventually, COVID is going to get your community. It is going to hit. Your mitigation strategies are not going to stop it from spreading. And that's what the South Koreans are currently learning. In a country of 52 million people, to put this in perspective, they're averaging about 400,000 cases per day in recent days, which would be the equivalent in this country of two and a half million cases a day when you're adjusting for the population. So at our peak in the Omicron wave, we had 800,000 cases a day. They have the equivalent of 2.5 million cases a day right now in South Korea. So that does disrupt the narrative that South Korea did it perfectly and great and the compliance that they were able to achieve is the way to beat COVID. It delayed it. It did not stop it. And this, I mean, the trajectory, the the curve right now is off the charts in South Korea. That's the bad news for them and also for people who were completely invested in the South Korean model of intense compliance and restrictions. The good news for South Korea is that they are a very highly vaccinated society 86 percent fully vaccinated in that country 86 percent nearly two-thirds of south koreans are boosted they have western vaccines pfizer astrazeneca moderna those are their big vaccines in south korea 86 percent fully vaccinated so even though we are seeing these cases go through the roof and they have been now 
for a number of weeks, their death toll, their corresponding death toll, is still much, 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 much lower than the corresponding death tolls with our peaks in this country. Because the vaccines, while they are not the panacea sold by a lot of people, and I think the way that we understood what vaccines meant in the early days, that has not worked out perfectly. I'm the first to admit that. But these vaccines are exceptionally good at keeping you out of the hospital with severe COVID and out of the morgue dying from COVID. And so South Korea is having a very difficult time right now. But thankfully, many people are not going to die in that country because they're vaccinated. And it feels like a pretty good case study for people who believe that a lot of the mitigation efforts were a waste of time, broadly speaking. But vaccines, despite the flaws, are profoundly life saving. That's been roughly my position for quite a while on this show. And we're seeing that play out in South Korea. You can't stop COVID from getting you, but you can protect yourself with the vaccines. And that's the latest from halfway across the world. Wanted to bring you that information on top of this new CDC data here at home, especially involving kids. I thought it was worth opening the show on COVID. We haven't done that in a while, but this news was significant. And with that, we've got to step aside. I've gone long here. Just getting started Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. One more note on COVID. This from the New York Times. A new study reports that the number of Americans who died of alcohol-related causes increased precipitously during the first year of the pandemic as routines were disrupted, support networks frayed, and treatment was delayed. The startling report comes amid a growing realization that COVID's toll extends beyond the number of lives claimed directly by the disease to the excess deaths caused by illnesses left untreated and a surge in drug overdoses, as well as social costs like educational setbacks and the loss of parents and caregivers. Yes, ripple effects from some of the government policies to fight the pandemic are responsible for some of the excess deaths. And I think we're going to get more and more of that picture as the months and the years drag on. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Don't go anywhere. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. I'm very glad that you're listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Joining us now, Josh Krossauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, it's good to have you back here. Welcome. Hey, Guy. Good to be back on the show. 
I want to get your reaction to a soundbite here. Former President Trump appeared on Stuart Varney's show on Fox Business Network yesterday, and they were talking about looking backward, which Trump likes to do about 2020. He said a lot of things about that election. Quite a lot of those things that he says are not true. And Varney was kind of nudging him to say, shouldn't the Republicans this year and next cycle look forward, look ahead and not try to relitigate 2020. And this was Trump's answer. Cut 31. If we go into 2022, the elections, and 2024, and you're still looking back to the election of 2020 and saying that you really won, I don't think that's very good for you or the Republican Party. You want to comment on that? Well, yeah, I I actually think it is good for me. And I think if we don't uh, put out all of the crooked things, and we know what they are, that you won't win in 22 and you won't win in 24 if we don't get to it. So I think it's the opposite, actually. And I talk nothing about – nobody you, talks more wait, about the future you, you than think I do. That but 2022, you, you, th- you, you think that 2022 and 2024 are all about the 2020 election? Really? No, no, no. I think for us to win the election, we have to know how they cheated because otherwise they'll cheat again. And we do know how they cheated. Okay, Josh. So – I have made my position clear on this program. We had the former Attorney General Bill Barr on this show last week for an hour. In his book, he details extensively how the claims of widespread voter fraud that would have tipped an election did not occur. There is not evidence of that. Even if you're concerned about certain irregularities here or there, not wanting to keep emergency 2020 pandemic era provisions on the books, that's a separate thing than saying that the election was stolen and Trump was cheated of a legitimate win. He lost the election. And this is Trump saying he wants to keep fighting that fight in 2022 and 2024. And I agree with the premise of Stewart's question that this would be a damaging thing that most Republicans on the ballot will want nothing to do with because voters aren't interested in that. Voters are interested in putting a check on the Biden administration and hopefully throwing the Democrats out of power in 22 and 24, not if it's a choice between that and was the election stolen two years ago. Your thoughts? I I think the answer from former President Trump was quite revealing. He said it's good for me, but he didn't say it's good for the Republican Party, for the ability to check President Biden and the Democrats, as, as you're talking about. And that is the, the dilemma, that, that Trump has continued to maintain that the election was stolen and accurately and come up with these conspiracy theories. But most Republicans have moved on. Most Republicans recognize that to win in the midterms, to win in the future, you've got to talk about what you're going to do in the future, not dwell in the past. And you know, just look at some of these Senate races and, and governor's races, Guy, where Trump has intervened in these primaries, largely along the lines of supporting Republicans who are repeating his, his lies, repeating the, the same sense of grievance about the 2020 election. These Republicans, by and large, are actually not doing very well. That's David Perdue losing in Georgia, Mo Brooks in Alabama. Uh, you, the list goes on and on. Um, Far from being a powerhouse within the Republican Party, Trump's continued insistence on on talking about the 2020 election is only hurting him and certainly hurting Republicans who echo that same rhetoric. 
So that is going to be the story of the midterms of the Republican Party. It's going to be the story going into 2024. You know, I think we're assuming that Trump is the same power as he was as president. He has the same hold on the party that he did when he was in the White House. It's not shaping up to be the case. And if anything, Trump is out on an island talking about 2020 and, and, and all these. Yeah, but he's still the front runner, days, right? There's no a lot of people. There's a lot of people listening right now saying, well, you know, I'm not really sure it's a great idea to always talk about 2020. And he might have some points. I wish he would knock it off on some of these other points and move forward. There's a lot of people who would be willing to vote for him again. And a lot of those people are eager to vote for him again. And you know, I just think if he had accepted the loss in 2020 and just criticized you know, Biden or just let Biden self-immolate the way that he has, I think Trump would be far and away a front runner and Republicans wouldn't be shying away from talking about some of his issues because they'd be related to criticizing Democrats as opposed to you know conspiracy theories from two years ago. But Trump is signaling very clearly that that's what he wants to do. He wants to keep doing. And I just fear that would be uh, not advantageous, in addition to being factually wrong, not advantageous politically for the Republican Party, a party that needs to regain some power because the Democrats running the show has been an absolute disaster since Biden took office. That's my view of it. And, Josh, in one of the races that I want to focus in on, the Democrats, and I I touched on this yesterday, are hoping, hoping, hoping that in the state of Missouri, the former governor who resigned under multiple scandals Eric Greitens becomes the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate out there because that should be a safe seat. The other Republican would-be nominees have 10 to 20-point leads in the polling over the Democrats out there. But Greitens is tied with the Democrats, and that would be an issue brought up in a lot of other races around the country. That's how the media operates. And it would be probably at least competitive, and Republicans would have to spend resources on behalf of someone with – Uh, very, very serious problems, to put it lightly, just to hold that seat. And the news that broke yesterday is that Greitens' ex-wife is alleging physical abuse against her and their children, in addition to really intense emotional abuse, buying a gun, threatening suicide if she wouldn't publicly support him in a lot of ways. Uh, She put out a statement today saying she stands by everything in that court document, although she worked very hard to keep that secret. It leaked. It's now out there. Greitens' former campaign manager is backing her. Almost every Republican, major Republican in the state, is calling on Greitens to drop out of the race. There were rumors that Trump was thinking about endorsing Greitens, which would make him the clear frontrunner in a very crowded field. I wonder if this news might spook Trump and have him back away. What do you think of the mess right now in Missouri? Is there a chance that this ends the Greitens campaign or at least pushes him out of first place in the polls? This is a disaster. This is one of the most scandal-plagued, ugly candidates uh, that has been uh, a contender. And and, and we've we've, we've, we've talked about flawed Republican candidates over the years, Guy, but but Greitens really takes the cake. He was basically about to be impeached by his own party in Missouri by a bunch of conservatives. Not, not not liberal Democrats, but but by his own party in, in a red state like Missouri. Look, I, I, some of Greitens' advantages are name ID. It's not like the, the, the combination of his profile from a, being a former governor and also a very divided Republican field that's featuring lots of candidates. I, I think this is going to really uh, get a lot of attention and, and, and depress his support within the state. Uh, the challenge is, like, who, who, who are Republicans going to get behind? I think there's a dilemma 
Rick Scott, the National Republican Senatorial Committee chairman, uh, condemned Greitens' these allegations about domestic abuse involving Greitens. But he's maintained this, I'm not going to get involved in primaries, I'm not going to endorse in primaries. This is a situation where you could have not just Trump staying out of the picture, but having a Republican leader like Scott saying, you know, either endorsing someone or actually telling Greitens to get out of the race. Um, I think yeah. that would be a powerful Well, and here's my do. thing, Josh, and I, I don't like wading into primaries either. I almost never do it. In this case, I think that this guy's known behavior from his governorship and before, and now this serious allegation and people apparently who know them well believe the wife, and it would definitely align with some of his prior behavior. This is not out of nowhere at, at all. It seems like this allegation is um, – it would it would follow from what is known about Greitens character already uh, that to me is enough of a disgusting stain that he should not be a major party nominee for major office ever again. And it would be just insane political malpractice to put that seat in competition and give the Democrats a lifeline in Missouri and a big issue that they can hammer on in other races. And I saw all of the competitors and I'm not picking any of his competitors. I, you know, anyone else, basically, but they're all putting out statements saying he needs to drop out of the race, so on and so forth. Fine. But at some point, I feel like some of them need to drop out of the race. If you're going to stop someone in a crowded field, the best way to do it is to consolidate around someone who can win easily based on the polling and not have a fractured, you know, whatever, six person race where a very small percentage of the vote could eventually be enough for someone like Greitens to, to sneak through it, it. They can all put out every press release, you know, in, in the book telling this guy to get out of the race. If he doesn't do it, some of them have to get out. Or this could be a self-inflicted huge wound by a Republican Party in a state that kind of already did this in a Senate race recently with Todd Aiken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, the, the, there is plays in the playbook that the McConnell, Scott and some folks in Republican leadership could follow Josh Hawley the other senator from the senator from Missouri's lead and endorse a candidate and get behind one candidate. Now he got behind Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler and she's one of the, the leading contenders. And, and, you know, if, if they followed suit, that might help Hartzler come into first place and, and get momentum in the race, but that would alienate other Republican candidates that are not Eric Greitens in, in the field. I also want to bring up one other point, which is that, I mean, this is a very, very ugly allegation and we know about Eric Greitens' track record, but this is going to be a tricky situation. The domestic abuse is an, an issue in the Georgia Senate race, too, with Herschel Walker, a candidate that Trump initially championed and other Republicans well, have gotten And behind, Raphael Warnock, by the way. That Warnock has issues, too, on, on, on that front. But that that is one of these things where it gets really tricky because we the one of Herschel Walker's primary opponents, Republican primary opponents, put out a essentially a video dossier of, of the book on domestic abuse in, in his background. And I, you know, I, I don't I think Republicans may have jumped a little too quickly in that Georgia Senate race, given how toxic this is in Missouri. There's some similar allegations in Georgia that are going to be litigated either by Republicans or by Democrats and Warnock in the general election. Yeah, I mean Georgia could get ugly because you'll have competing allegations of domestic abuse back and forth between both candidates. I mean, and that was out there when uh, domestic, when uh, rather Raphael Warnock won last time. I mean, there was video of it, there were allegations, there was a police report, and voters apparently just didn't really care about that in Georgia. Now you might have both candidates, both nominees in that race, pointing the finger at each other on that front, which is going to be ugly and also very expensive. Um, you bring up a good point there. 
I want to ask you, Josh, about another issue. I saw this in the Free Beacon, the Washington Free Beacon today. I tweeted it. I saw that you also tweeted it. Some journalists have gone around, some conservatives have gone around and checked to see if Democratic offices on Capitol Hill are actually open and functioning. And they found that, to me at least, a shocking number of Democrat House members and senators, their offices on Capitol Hill remain totally closed, in some cases partially closed, but in many cases completely closed. No one is in these offices due to COVID, supposedly. And you've got members casting proxy votes in the House. You've got their entire D.C. staffs working remotely. I mean, that is extremely far removed from the experience of most Americans. And I just think optically it's a very weird thing to be in March of 2022 and the polls have changed and all these Democrats are saying, oh, yes, no, we're we're past. We, we got to get back to normal. Their own offices in many cases are shuttered with no one there, just ghost towns. And I wonder what you make of that just as as a story in general. And why hasn't this been a bigger story? There's a lot of journalists who work up there every day. It took the Washington Free Beacon to sort of get curious and write up the piece. This seems newsworthy to me. It was a very good scoop by the Free Beacon. It's one of those stories that everyone is talking about, but no one until the Free Beacon reported it has actually written about it. Um, it, it, Look, you heard President Biden at the State of the Union address basically tell workers to get back to the office because it's not just about, you know, the flexibility of telework. It's about downtown cities across the country being able to survive. It's about small businesses being able to operate. I mean, there, there was sort of a revolution that took place during the pandemic where people were able to work from home, but it had massive consequences on small businesses and downtowns and the revenue that cities are able to bring in. And the fact that Democrats are still, I mean, there's this huge partisan divide on Capitol Hill where, even as Biden gave me those comments at the State of the Union, even as Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the House Democratic campaign recruiting arm, said, you know, we, there's this whole mask mandate is in control. We need to get back to normal. You still have the behavior of leading Democratic lawmakers, many in a majority of offices, saying we can still work from home. We don't need to be in the office. In a profession, by the way, guy, we're talking to the folks on the, on the other side of the aisle, having face-to-face communications, negotiating, compromises. That well, and meetings with constituents, right? People come to town to meet their representatives in Washington, and they show up, and the doors are locked. There's a sign on the door saying, sorry, we're closed due to COVID. And you're seeing that from a, a number of Democrats who come from districts or states that are very much contested, places where people have to show up to work and have been showing up to work in person for the entire pandemic in certain industries. And these senators and these congresspeople still have their staffs at home, not working in the office, including young people. I mean, I I think it's uh, this is the type of story of absenteeism that could draw a little bit of political blood if the Republicans play this smartly and correctly Big scoop by the Free Beacon. Quickly, Josh, and finally, Politico with a story today about a forthcoming book that is once again alleging tension between the president's camp and the vice president's camp. We've seen this now multiple times. This is kind of the sniping back and forth. Uh, This is not one big happy family over at the White House, it seems. No, I'm really looking forward to to read Jonathan Martin, Alex Burns's upcoming book, where, which apparently has more more juicy scoops where where that came from. But that's a fundamental point that, again, is one of those things that things that's talked about all over the Democratic 
side of the aisle in Washington, but it doesn't always get out in the news. But, you know, all you have to do is watch Harris speak. All you have to do is watch her performance as vice president. Yeah. It's been a disaster. And, and Democrats know this just like we do and we, we talk about on the show. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, she's the heir apparent on paper to – to the president, and she can't seem to do the basic blocking and tackling of her job, and it's becoming yeah, so, so a they, bigger, they snipe, bigger problem. They, they snipe down at her from the president's office, and then the sniping comes back, and there's sort of allegations. Is this because of sexism or racism? Are they giving her an unfair and difficult portfolio? And on it goes, sort of some palace drama over there in the Biden administration. Josh Crossauer, politics editor at National Journal, Fox News Radio political analyst. Always appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Though my Republican colleagues and public figures have attempted to undermine your qualifications through their pejorative use of the term affirmative action, and they have implied you were solely nominated due to your race and not for other factors. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that was Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, one of the worst people on Capitol Hill. Earlier today at the Judge Jackson confirmation hearings, which are currently in a temporary recess, they're taking a break. And she was very angry that some people have implied, she said, that Judge Jackson was nominated because of her race and not other factors. The problem is that wasn't an implication by Republicans. That was an explicit promise by the man who nominated her. He started his search with race and gender and went from there. You could say she would have been the best qualified. I think she is qualified. I disagree with her nomination. I don't support her because she's a leftist. But you could say she was the best qualified anyway. But he undermined that by announcing publicly it was about race and sex first. That's not a Republican implication. That is what the president said publicly. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a fresh hour on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three, between three and six Eastern every weekday. Our podcast, if you can't listen live, always free, GuyBensonShow.com. Everything right there on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. We appreciate your listenership. Fox News alert. The Dow surges at the close and finishes well in the green, ending the day at 254 points up, closing at 34,807. Joining us now is Steve Harrigan. Fox News correspondent based in Atlanta, but he is often all over the country and all over the world on assignment. And, Steve, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Good to be with you, Guy. I was reading your full bio earlier, and I've seen you on our air for many years. You joined Fox in 2001. Before that, you were at CNN for a decade. You've traveled across the globe. You are fluent in Russian. You started your career, in fact, in Moscow. And I wonder... Just taking a step back from the day-to-day updates of this conflict in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what do you make of what Putin might be ultimately thinking at this stage? Because it seems like whatever plan he had in mind has not transpired. What might be his mentality right now based on everything that you've gathered 
and learned about not just Putin, but just Russian thinking in general over your career? You're, you're right. The plan that they had obviously hasn't worked to take Kiev in two days. Now we're in the fourth week. But what I think and what I feel really scares me, things that I didn't think were possible before this conflict started, I assume the worst there would be shelling and crushing cities and wholesale slaughter of civilians. I think Ukraine's success, Ukraine's heroism in fighting has just made the situation, in my view, even more dangerous and more worse. From seeing Putin for the last 20 years and from living with Russian forces in and around Chechnya as they crushed the city of 400,000 to nothing, they just basically took it off the map, paved it, rebuilt it, and put their own guy in. With that kind of a precedent, uh, I think that chemical weapons and nuclear weapons are not off the table for Vladimir Putin's Russia. I mean, that's obviously a, a chilling thought. Um, what's the alternative, though? Because the, the Ukrainians aren't going to just lie down and allow their country to be taken over because Putin might escalate even further. But the more that the Russians get humiliated on sort of the, the traditional battlefield, maybe the more desperate and angry Putin gets, it could drive him to do even even more destructive things. That's sort of what I'm hearing you say. What's the solution then? Because I think it's unfair to say, well, it could get even worse, Ukraine, surrender. Correct. I'm certainly not advocating that, and I certainly don't expect that. And I think they, you know, will fight to the last man and the last woman. You hear tremendous stories about people just dropping their business in whatever country they're in, Ukrainians from all around the world, returning to fight and to put it on the line. It's been an amazing story, and I expect nothing less from them. But there's a few cities now. I mean, we're seeing the fight for Kiev unsuccessful. But there's a few cities now where the Ukrainian governor or the local official would say, we're basically gone. We're off the map. And the use of traditional weapons, artillery, and long-range missiles are just flattening cities. I think the failure has led to an increase in old-school tactics and in deliberate targeting of civilians and hospital civilian infrastructure, trying to make it collapse from within. So I, I don't think there's a solution. If you ask me what I think is going to happen, I think the West is going to stay on the sideline. Putin's going to continue to get beaten and humiliated. And then Putin is going to use Putin, not just Putin, not just one man, not just one crazed, all-powerful leader, but with a lot of people behind him who think this is a fight for Russia's existence. I think they're going to use, at minimum, chemical weapons in Ukraine. Well, I mean, it's just very disturbing to hear you say that. Have you been surprised, Steve, given your experience, some of which you just mentioned, with the Russian military, how poorly they've performed, how ill-equipped they appear to be, how low their morale is, how incompetent this invasion has been in a lot of important ways? Well, we heard about the great changes in the Russian military over the past 20 years. They were embarrassed in Chechnya. I keep going back to that because— it was so important to me to see a major, you know, superpower really get humiliated by a few thousand fighters in a Muslim breakaway republic inside of Russia 20 years ago. They said they'd take it in two hours, and they failed. And 10 years later, they were still fighting. 
it was really similar what happened with Kiev. They said, oh, even the Americans said, well, they're going to take Kiev. They're going to roll over the Ukrainians and take it in two days. So it wasn't just Russia who was wrong. It was the U.S. who was wrong. And it was almost everybody else who'd observed Russia for a long time thinking this could never happen. There's a real gap in understanding about Putin and about Russia and about what the leadership is thinking for so many people to be so wrong about a major invasion. Is there a point at which the Russian people will demand an end to this? I know there are people who are very bravely protesting internally within Russia, facing and staring down potentially 15-year prison sentences for speaking out. They're doing it anyway. But it doesn't seem to be broadly systemic where there's enough of an uprising where the people of Russia have risen up together uh, to say that, that, that they've seen enough, they've had enough. I know that state media has been distorting what's actually happening in Ukraine, what the real dynamics are, what the outcomes are. But at some point, does a defeat or failure become so undeniable that word starts to seep back into Russia and the word spreads enough that the pressures internally could become enough where maybe the calculus would change at the Kremlin? Or would that take quite a long time maybe to get to that point, even with these really shocking estimates of Russian casualties that are very high already? I think you put your finger on it. I think the thing that's going to move the needle for Russia and Russian families is casualties. You know, anywhere, you know, from five to 10,000, no accurate number. But it's casualties that moved public opinion in Russia on the failure in Afghanistan and that brought down the Soviet Union. And as you say, it might take a year for it to happen. But casualties at this pace, already far outpacing in four weeks, entire U.S. casualties in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, at this pace, it is unsustainable and it might be accelerated. But while you can't compare the suffering that's going on in Ukraine to the economic hardships in Russia, they are dramatic. I mean, I was just reading today about the main airport in Moscow, Sheremetyevo, and they basically had to lay off people because no flights are going in and out. You can't pay for things with credit cards. You can't buy things. All stores are shutting. You can't get on, you know, no airlines are servicing. You can't fly in or out. It's really, looking at pictures of their main airport, it was spooky, an airport that's always packed. So I think no matter what state TV says, people know that something weird is going on. And your point about casualties, that's what's going to move the Russian people when their family members are dying and they don't see the point. Since you've raised the specter of a potentially catastrophic event beyond what we've already seen with this Russian destruction, let me put another idea out there and just get your reaction to it. There are probably, and I've heard people in, in conversation, private conversation, even some public conversation, wondering, would there be a point, forget an uprising of the people of Russia, what about the elites of Russia? What about the military generals? What about the secret services? What about the oligarchs in particular? Is there a point at which Vladimir Putin, beyond whatever level of paranoia he might already have, might have some basis for fear of something like equivalent to a coup or a hostile takeover of, of elites at the top echelons of his government and society no longer being willing to go along with or put up with 
the policy that he is now ordering and leading. Is that a realistic uh, possibility? I think it is a realistic possibility. I think there's really two possible approaches. One is the elite and the oligarchs around him realize that they are being ostracized from the rest of the world and that basically like a mafia don who's lost his marbles, that this guy is bad for business and because of business, make a business decision and he has to go. But I think the larger question, the more worrisome question, is just how much of the Russian elite is behind this war. If it's not just in Putin's brain, it's not just his nostalgia for the Soviet past, but whether there's a belief that Russia is fighting a war for its existence against NATO and the U.S., which wants to see Russia on its knees. To the extent that there are more people around him and elite around him, I think he'll stay. And I think this is a person who's figured out how to be in charge in Russia, to take control away from Yeltsin, away from billionaire businessmen, and in his own hands run the show for 20 years. He's going to be hard to boot. Steve Harrigan, I just want to ask you a little bit here about your career and some of your reflections on it, just because I was looking forward to this conversation, as I mentioned at the top, looking at your bio. You got your start in Moscow, you speak fluent Russian. How did you get into this whole business in the first place? I uh, thought maybe I'd be a spy, uh, but then that didn't seem to suit me. But I really liked the language, so I went over there to teach at a Russian university, and they walked down the hall because Gorbachev had threatened to resign. They said, ah, we need people who speak English and Russian. We'll pay you $100 a day. Well, I had about $900 to my name at that point. So I said, uh, fine, I'll go. And so the first day of work, I had a big boom microphone. They just said, hold it next to Gorbachev, the big furry mic. And I was standing right next to Gorbachev looking at the red spot on his head in the Kremlin. And I thought, Wait, hang on. Fantastic. The first day of your journalism <laughs> career, day one, yeah. you were standing next to Gorbachev? There were about 50 cameras around him, so it was a scrum. But Still. I was just... The spot that I saw on TV for months, now I was looking right at it. (laughs) That's amazing. And you've told a story publicly, and I saw it uh, when we were celebrating 25 years at Fox News, this anecdote that you tell about having been to a lot of very dangerous places through the years, war-torn countries, war zones, uh, terrible, unimaginable conflict, and you were covering all of it uh, across multiple continents, and at some point, there was some boss or executive at Fox who said, all right, Steve Harrigan, you've, you've really paid a lot of your dues. You've been out there in, in harm's way. Let's put a tie on you. Let's put you behind a desk somewhere, and you can do more domestic news and, and have more creature comforts. And you said, no, thank you. I want to keep doing this kind of reporting. Why? I, I'm, just, I'm curious, what yeah. is it about this that drives you that you love so much, even though you know – it is much more dangerous to your well-being in some ways than being in New York or D.C. or, or somewhere of your choosing beyond yeah. uh, some of those far-flung I mean, I, areas. I, there are people who go further than I do and take more risks than I do. But I really find it tremendously exciting, on the one hand, just to see firepower in action, just to see to see the fight. And on the other hand, the mystery of what's going to happen. You you see a country flip sometimes, and to me, that is just amazing. 
So are you happy with your decision ultimately not to maybe knock over on the, the door of the, you know, the station chief at the CIA in Moscow and instead go this journalism route? Oh, it's been uh, it's been fantastic. It's been so thrilling. And uh, you're with great people and you get to see it. You get to see history. I mean, I was in Afghanistan. I was stuck there. You know, uh, my aunt had a funeral. I had to, was supposed to go back for it. And my cousin said, you're you are watching history happen. You don't know who's going to win this. You're watching it. And uh, I tried to stick to that. Finally, Steve Harrigan, just your thoughts on the recent and tragic loss of two of our colleagues here at Fox News and the wounding of a correspondent, one of your colleagues who's often abroad, Benjamin Hall, who, thank God, has survived, but uh, not not before he was hurt pretty badly. That has to be a particularly sobering and painful development for you. It hurts. It changes the story. It makes us understand what Ukraine is going through. And I think it hurts the whole Fox community. I think I think it's a different company after this. I think we realize something, a real deep loss. And Pierre, Zach, you know, if I'm a five on the scale, he was a 55. I mean, he was the best and the toughest. And I was just in awe watching him. I never had to say a word for to him. I was in maybe 10 war zones with him. And it was just a wink and a nod. I mean, a real pro. And I'm sorry for his mother. That's what I'm sorry for. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Steve Harrigan, one of our correspondents here at Fox News. You've seen him for decades on our air. And he's got a breather right now, but he'll be back at it soon enough. And we appreciate the work that you do. We'll be watching. We'll be listening. And hopefully we'll have you back. Thanks a lot, Guy. You bet. Steve Harrigan on The Guy Benson Show. And we will be back right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We just mentioned in the last segment with Steve Harrigan, Benjamin Hall, our correspondent who was wounded in Ukraine. And there was this strike force that we talked to Dana Perino about yesterday that went in and helped get him. And the Pentagon was involved as well. And the Pentagon spokesman, John Kirby, from the Biden administration, was on Fox and Friends earlier. And this was a nice moment with some of our Fox colleagues thanking the Biden administration and the Pentagon for their role in helping save Benjamin Hall and spirit him to safety. Cut 37. Thank you as well for your, you know, the Department of of Defense and the Pentagon in assisting getting our man, uh, Mm -hmm. Benjamin Hall, out of Ukraine. Yeah, God bless you for that. Uh, well, our, our thoughts and prayers go to, to Mr. Hall and to all the people at Fox uh, and, uh, and, and, of course, Mr. Hall's family. Uh, we were uh, very glad to be able to help uh, get him the care that he needs, and, uh, and we look forward to seeing him come home uh, to his family where he belongs. And, again, uh, it, was, uh, it was the right thing to do, and we were, we were, uh, we were pleased to be able well, to, to help. But, yeah. but, Admiral, you didn't help a little. You helped a lot. Yes. Uh, thanks, Brian. I mean, again, uh, we... Uh, unfortunately, as I think you all know, we're, we're all too familiar with these kinds of injuries. So that was a nice moment, uh, sort of a conciliatory moment. And often there's an adversarial relationship, and I think that's for good reason, between our network and the Biden administration, and we hold them to account. But when they were helpful in this case, I think to acknowledge that and to thank them for that is really important. In the meantime, President Biden will be wheels up in Air Force One tomorrow, headed to Brussels for NATO meetings, which will be, I think, highly consequential, tense NATO meetings, more so than they typically are. 
certainly in recent memory. And on that trip overseas, he will also be going to Poland. He's scheduled to do that on Friday. That, of course, is a neighboring country to Ukraine. And I just think that there's a non-zero chance that President Biden might set foot in Ukraine somewhere on this trip. I'm not guaranteeing it. I don't know that for a fact. The White House says there's no plans for that right now. I think to make a statement, though, that might happen. So I'm just keeping an eye out for that. We'll see. I'm not saying that, you know, the trip would be pointless without that. I just think it would send a signal. But, of course, his safety is paramount. The Guy Benson Show continues with Andy McCarthy next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back halfway through the show today. Glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast on demand. And joining us again is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, also author of multiple best-selling books. His most recent is Ball of Collusion, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, great to have you here as always. Guy, great to be with you. I want to get your read on the Supreme Court hearings that are happening right now. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson currently answering questions from Senator Ben Sass, a Republican of Nebraska. What are your impressions of these hearings so far and of this nominee in general? Well, I think they've been very interesting hearings, Guy. It was I, I think uh, the judge is obviously uh, a very impressive woman and uh, scholar of the law. She's uh, got a winning personality. She's clearly smart and a, a linear thinker, which I think my this is my first uh, experience of watching her sort of think on her feet, even though she's been sitting down the whole time. And um, my only my impression of Judge Jackson up until now has been reading some of her opinions, which I wasn't particularly impressed by. But I'm very impressed by her uh, testimony. Um, and she's been much more willing and uh, to discuss uh, issues and less guarded than I've seen many Supreme Court nominees. So some of the exchanges with the uh, members of the committee have been very interesting. I do think that she has a kind of a go-to evasion when she gets pressed on uh, judicial philosophy, which interestingly, when, when we started our conversation, that was really what Senator Sass in a very amiable exchange here is, is uh, pressing her on. But she's basically, when she gets asked about her judicial philosophy, which she, she's claimed in the past that um, she hasn't formed one, which is hard to believe with uh, someone of her intelligence and experience. Um, but what she basically pivots to is what she calls her methodology. And I, I actually think that's a smokescreen because what she says is her methodology in every case includes figuring out what the law is that will decide whatever legal issue is before her. And that really is the bottom line question. How do you figure out what the law is? That's your uh, judicial philosophy. But she clearly doesn't want to get pinned down on that. There have been some observations, even from some conservatives today, that a number of these answers almost sound conservative from her, almost like she's at least flirting with originalism. Uh, she's highlighted parts of her, bio, uh, the, her biography that would maybe be appealing to conservatives. I am under no illusions that this is going to be suitor in reverse, right, where 
the left thinks right. they've got a leftist to put on the bench, and all of a sudden she's going to turn out to be, you know, Clarence Thomas or Antonin Scalia or something like that. I, I think the chances of that are basically zero. Is there a chance that she will not be as left wing as the left wing groups seem to believe and hope that she will? I don't think so. You know, Guy, it's important for people who are watching this with uh, fascination, as I am, to keep reminding themselves that a confirmation hearing is not a contract. There's nothing enforceable that comes out of this. If she if she sounds like Justice Scalia today and she gets on the court and she decides to be Justice Brennan, um, you know, you, you can't you don't get to fire her. You know, she doesn't uh, you're not going to be able to kick her off the court. So, um, you know, we hope that what we're hearing is, uh, you know, a good faith reflection of how she'll perform as a judge. But, uh, you know, I think what our experience has been is that a number of the the progressive justices make these kinds of noises um, in their confirmation hearings. And what we find once they get on the court is that they reliably vote as a block in yes. the big cases. Yep. Uh, outcomes based jurisprudence. Uh, not to say that never happens on the right, but they really right. stick together on the big stuff over on the left. And she has been pushed by these dark money left wing groups for good reason, I would say, from their perspective. And I'm not someone who rails against dark money, but the Democrats are ones who rail against dark money, except when it's their dark money and then they're totally fine with it. Andy, you've written that you are against her nomination because of her absent judicial philosophy, but the way you think that would play out. You think that she's a progressive. You disagree with that worldview. I agree with you on that point. Despite that opposition to her nomination, if you were, you know, Senator McCarthy from New Jersey, where you live, you'd be a no on this nomination. But you have written a few pieces arguing that one of the Republican criticisms against her is out of context and unfair. We've seen Senator Hawley of Missouri talk about her record on sentencing people uh, with child porn allegations and then convictions and and what those sentences would look like. Uh, He said that she's been very lenient, uh, like extraordinarily lenient. Senator Cruz was pursuing a a similar line, I should say, of questioning uh, just a few minutes ago. What's the truth? Because I've seen that a lot of Republicans sharing this information and the way they frame it, it does look like she's out of the mainstream on that question. You say not so fast. Explain. Well, I looked at the seven cases, for example, that uh, that Senator Hawley highlights, and what he neglects to mention is that in many of those cases, first of all, we're dealing with an area, child porn cases, where across the board and across partisan lines, there have been great complaint about the sentencing guidelines, that they're way too harsh and unrealistic. And that is not a progressive complaint. That's a complaint by judges and practitioners across the board. Uh, in the cases that she's ta- that he's talking about, in 80% of those cases, uh, judges don't sentence in accordance with the guidelines. They keep talking about how she's way under the guidelines. They, don't, they neglect to mention that the prosecutors are under the guidelines, too, in many of these cases. Uh, and what they don't mention at all, and I, I, it's hard to fault them too much on this guy because the White House gave this information to the Washington Post, but apparently didn't give it to the Republicans on the committee. But in every sentencing case, the probation department, which is an arm of the court, 
does a report and makes a recommendation to the judge about what the sentence should be. And I think those are worth taking into account because they're not a recommendation by one of the parties. Like the court, the probation department is independent. And in the cases that Hawley is talking about, there are seven of them. In three of them, she sentenced higher than the probation report called for, sometimes substantially higher. In two of them, she sentenced exactly where the probation report said to come out, which is pretty common in federal practice. And in a couple of other cases, she sentenced below the probation report. So that's pretty, that's pretty standard stuff. There's nothing particularly scandalous about it. And the thing I couldn't understand with respect to Senator Cruz is he kept saying, you sentenced below what the prosecutor recommended. And I have to tell you, Guy, I was a prosecutor for 20 years. It was pretty common for the judge to sentence below what the prosecutor recommended. You know, the prosecutor's in there pushing for a high sentence, and the judge is supposed to be the arbiter between the government and the defendant. The judge usually leans closer to what the government suggests because the government tries to stay within the sentencing guidelines, but there's nothing unusual about a judge not giving the sentence the, the government asked for, not ruling the way the government asks for, that, that ha- that's litigation. That's what the judge is there for, is to, is to be the arbiter, not a rubber stamp. So you feel like that's a weak line of argument against her, basically. It's kind of a nothing I, burger. I not, only think, I not only think it's weak, I think it's a tactical blunder, because there is a case to be made against Judge Jackson that she undermines the sentencing guidelines. Like if we take this, unfortunately, they decided they needed to smear her on child pornography, which is what offended me. I think that's a terrible thing to to throw at someone, especially if you you don't have the facts to back it up. But there is a case to be made that if you look at her sentences across the board, they are routinely lower than the sentencing guidelines. So not just in this uh, controversial area where most people don't like the sentencing guidelines. I'm talking about across the board. And then if you listen to her testimony about how she sentences, what she says is in every case she considers the sentencing guidelines to be just one factor in sentencing. And that's not what Congress intended. Congress intended essentially for the guideline sentence to be the sentence in most cases and that departures from the guidelines would be unusual. But, you know, they happen and the judge is authorized to do it. No one is saying she's imposed illegal sentences. But I think it would have been much more fruitful for them to to leave child pornography to the side and talk about her sentencing practice. Because if if she does what she described in her testimony, then the guidelines are basically meaningless. Last question. She has ducked this question about court packing. And we had Senator McConnell on this show a few weeks ago. He said that was something he pressed her on in their one-on-one meeting. She didn't want to talk about it at the hearing. She doesn't want to talk about it. And she's citing almost like the Amy Coney Barrett precedent, she says, that she didn't answer a question about this. But that wasn't an issue that really came up in that hearing very much. And Republicans have noted that other sitting Supreme Court justices, including the one she's going to be replacing, for whom she clerked, has been very clear on the record against the really you know, radical and extreme possibility, if even if it's a little bit remote right now, of court packing, she doesn't want to take a position on that. She says it's a policy issue that she won't weigh in on, but she has weighed in on other policy issues, for example, child porn sentencing guidelines, right? Uh, so I wonder what you make of that dodge. Well, I think it's two different things. I mean, tra- 
child porn sentencing guidelines she should weigh in on because she's she's sentenced people right so she she's got a record on that it is not the court's job uh to decide how many members the supreme court has the court doesn't is not in a position ever to rule on that so i understand why she doesn't want to answer the question and what i would just remind people is that when amy coney barrett was confirmed one of the big issues at the time was that it was right at election time. In other words, that Trump didn't wait until after, uh, you know, after the election result to see whether he would put someone on the court. So court packing was a big election issue at the time that Barrett had her hearing, whereas now it's really not. And I don't see what I, I mean. I understand why she doesn't want to answer the question. I don't see what difference it makes whether she wants to pack the court or not. Uh, because she's not in a position to do it. And I would think once she gets on the court, the prestige and influence of the court is dependent on its not being packed. So you would think that on the court she would have an in, an interest in being against court packing, but it's not her job. So I kind of understand why she doesn't want to answer the question. Yeah, unless the ideology and the outcomes matter more to her than the prestige or the legitimacy of the court. But to some extent, either way, it's moot because it would be – a radical act of a Congress, for example, or a president working in concert that would do something like that, which I still think is rather unlikely, but uh, it wouldn't come down to her, uh, is is your point. And we'll leave it there. Andy, interesting stuff. And I know that there's going to be another whole round of questioning still to come. And if anything big pops up, we might have you back. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, Fox News contributor. Andy, thank you. Thanks, guys. We will step aside and return right after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. We've talked a lot in recent days about how the White House and Democrats on Capitol Hill are insisting that we have to spend even more money. Congress needs to allocate billions more for COVID relief. Because I guess $6 trillion was not enough, they say, which is just so insulting, given that trillions of that still have not been spent. And a lot has been allocated toward things that are not urgent COVID relief, but they're threatening to cut urgent COVID relief unless there's more spending. This is the game that is played. It is so cynical. But with $6 trillion in the rearview mirror, I think... Even some center-left Americans have to think to themselves, you've got to be kidding me. No way. And this goes to the stupidity of how a lot of our conversations go and our debates in Washington. Another example is this. Last week, the omnibus spending, uh, spending bill was passed by the Senate. This is a huge sort of budget bill rolled into one giant piece of legislation, 2,700 pages, overnight, vote on it up or down. And a bunch of Republicans voted no. Enough voted yes that it passed, but a bunch of Republicans voted no, including some Republicans who have said publicly that the U.S. needs to be doing more to help the Ukrainians and aid militarily the Ukrainians. So they threw something like $13 billion of Ukrainian military aid into this giant 2,700-page bill, $1.5 trillion. And some of the Republicans who said, I agree with the Ukraine spending. Can we do that separately? No, you cannot, was the response. It has to be in this giant, huge package instead. So those Republicans said, well, we can't go along with that, so they voted no. 
And then the media, Washington Post had a classic headline on this, and the Democrats working together because they're all a bunch of liberals. They're like, look at these hypocritical Republicans. They say Biden should do more for Ukraine than he tries to do more, and they vote no, as if the vote was about the Ukraine aid and not the other, what, 2,600 pages or whatever it might be, and all that other spending. One of the Democrats who was flogging this talking point was Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, senator. He's a big, bare-knuckled partisan. And Ben Sass of Nebraska, we mentioned him a moment ago, he was speaking at the hearings that are playing out right now, he took exception to it. And they had a back-and-forth late last week on the Senate floor that I wanted to just play for you so you can hear Sass exposing how ridiculous the talking point was on the Democratic side, and he challenged Murphy directly on the floor, which you don't really see that often. Cut 25. So let me just see if I understand what you just said. So eight-tenths of one percent of the bill that was passed in the middle of the night last week is about Ukrainian aid. Do you believe that the people who voted against it voted against it because they were against Ukrainian aid? So every one of us approaches a big... I'm asking a really simple question. Do you think a single person that your Twitter self-pleasuring was for, do you think a single person that voted against it voted against it because they were against Ukrainian aid? Absolutely not. So then what's the point of the tweet? The point is this, is that the only way that this place passes legislation, right, is compromise, is voting on pieces of legislation that have in it... Where are the pieces, dude? It's $1.5 trillion. Where are the pieces, dude? Twitter self-pleasuring, by the way, is a terrific line. He got Murphy to admit, oh, the attack that I'm launching about Ukrainian aid, actually, I don't believe that. I don't believe that you guys voted against the Ukrainian aid. You were voting against other things. So Sass is like, well, what was the point of your self-pleasuring tweet? Fan service, which is exactly right. Sass ultimately calls it grandstanding and basically put a period on this paragraph of this back and forth, which actually broke Senate rules. Technically, they're not supposed to engage each other directly. You're supposed to go and direct the president of the chamber, but they kind of moved past that. Here's what Sass said at the end of the exchange. Cut 30. But the real thing we're talking about is grandstanding because there's not a person on earth who's persuaded by that kind of tweet. You didn't move anybody. You're doing fan service for a subset of people who like Chris Murphy. I get why some people would like things that you stand for and advocate for. I get it. But there's not a person who disagreed with you who's moved because of a tweet like that. There's not an uninformed American who became informed, but there is a subset of the people who already like you that you got to grandstand for. That's all that happened with that tweet. The Republic got dumber because of that tweet. Nobody learned anything. Oh, it's good stuff. And Murphy really deserved it. And Sass let him have it. Twitter self-pleasuring. I got to start using that. That's a good term. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Woke tales that you need to hear. Straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. We are into the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every day. GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss any of the show as we air, 
podcast free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. You should try it out if you haven't already. If you're 21 plus only, TheLongDrink.com. They're expanding eight new states in the last few weeks. Still more to come. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. Well, as we begin our final hour, I want to delve into a few issues that would qualify as woke tales for sure. But for this first topic, I don't want to play the woke tales jingle because I feel like this is actually too serious for that. We will get to it probably in the next segment with a few other more run of the mill examples. But this is alarming what I'm about to read to you. We quote with some regularity on this show Barry Weiss's Substack called Common Sense, and she's done very well since she left the New York Times, citing a stifling environment of left-wing bullying. She's a left-of-center person, but she's kind of made it a mission in her life to fight back against the hardcore, so-called progressive, woke radicals. And I admire her very much for that. And when... She has certain people that she brings in to publish their work on academia, on medicine, on corporate America. There's a whole array of elements of our society that are being penetrated and slowly taken over by this really totalitarian mindset. And when it's worthwhile, we bring you some of those instances and we quote from her work or the work that she publishes on her platform. Today is one of those days. Headline is, the takeover of America's legal system. Subheadline, the kids didn't grow out of it. She hands her platform over to Erin Sibarium, who's a journalist, and she begins with a little note. A note to the reader, which I'm going to read to you in a second. But first, this comes in the context of the mess, the melee at Yale Law School that we talked about last week where there was a panel about the First Amendment with a conservative guest from a conservative organization and a lefty guest from a lefty organization, and they had actually taken the same position in court on a constitutional issue, and the Federalist Society brought them to Yale Law School to talk about it. And because the conservative organization is socially conservative and pro-religious liberty and sometimes has taken – Positions that I would say fairly can be described as hostile to LGBT activists or LGBT rights. There was a massive hubbub at Yale Law School about the circumstances surrounding this panel. That someone from Alliance Defending Freedom could step foot on campus and be given a microphone was too much for some of these supposedly elite law students to bear. So they showed up, they shouted this person down, they carried on, they were eventually thrown out of the room, and then were screaming and shrieking and pounding on the walls just outside of the room as to drown out what was being said inside the hall. We told you about that. There's been a little skirmish about it on social media. It's certainly a big story in New Haven at Yale. But this goes to a radical intolerance. That is not just a fringe movement of a small percentage anymore. It is increasingly dominant in some of these places. And then that mentality is being exported elsewhere in our society and elsewhere within 
the legal community. And that is extremely alarming. And that's what Barry Weiss gets to in her little introductory paragraph. She says, if you're a common sense reader, you are by now highly aware of the phenomenon of institutional capture. From the start, we have covered the ongoing saga of how America's most important institutions have been transformed by an illiberal ideology and have come to betray their own missions, medicine, Hollywood, education. The reason we exist, she writes, is because of the takeover of newspapers like the New York Times. So we've lost a lot, a whole lot. But at least we haven't lost the law. That's how we've comforted ourselves. The law would be the bulwark against this nonsense. The rest we could work on building anew. But what if the country's legal system was changing just like everything else? Today, Aaron Sabarium, a reporter who has consistently been ahead of the pack on this beat, offers a groundbreaking piece on how the legal system in America, as one prominent liberal scholar put it, is at risk of becoming a totalitarian nightmare. So I'm just going to read excerpts from this because it's a very long piece and you can go check it out for yourself. But we'll start in law schools. Sabarium writes, the politicization and tribalism of campus life have crowded out old-fashioned expectations about justice and neutrality. The imperatives of race, gender, and identity are more important to more and more law students than due process, the presumption of innocence, and all the norms and values at the foundation of what we think of as the rule of law. Critics of those values are nothing new, of course, and certainly they are not new at elite law schools. Critical race theory, as it came to be called in the 1980s, began as a critique of a neutral principle of justice. The argument went like this. Since the United States was systemically racist, since racism was baked into the country's political, legal, and economic and cultural institutions, neutrality the conviction that the system should not seek to benefit any one group, camouflaged and even compounded that racism. He's describing, summarizing critical race theory, the narrow definition, not the broader umbrella of race essentialism and racial curricula. He says, under CRT in law schools, the only way to undo it, to undo the harm, was to abandon all pretense of neutrality and to be unneutral. It was to tip the scales in favor of those who never had a fair shake to start with. But critical race theory, until quite recently, only had so much purchase in legal academia. At first, the conventional wisdom held that it was just a few college kids, a few spoiled snowflakes, who would grow out of it when they reached the real world and became serious people. This is something I've been warning about now for years, this mistaken assumption. That did not happen, Sabarium writes. Instead, the undergraduates clung to their ideas about justice and injustice. They became medical students and law students. Then 2020 happened. All of a sudden, critical race theory was more than mainstream in America's law schools. It was mandatory. Starting this fall, Georgetown Law School will require all students to take a class on the importance of, quote, questioning the law's neutrality and assessing its differential effects on subordinated groups. That's according to university documents obtained by Common Sense. UC Irvine School of Law, University of Southern California, Gold School of Law, Yeshiva University's Cardozo School of Law, and Boston College Law have also implemented similar requirements. Professors say it is harder to lecture about cases in which rapists are acquitted or a police officer is found not guilty of abusing his authority. One criminal law professor at a top law school told me he's even stopped teaching theories of punishment because of how negatively students react to 
retribution, the view that punishment is justified because criminals deserve to suffer. Quote, I got into this job because I like to play devil's advocate, said the tenured professor, who identifies as a liberal. I can't do that anymore. I have a family. The implication being he fears for his job because he understands what the mob is capable of. The story goes on. Other law professors, several of whom asked me not to identify their institution, their area of expertise, or even their state of residence, were similarly terrified. Here's one who goes on the record, Nadine Strassen, the first woman to head the ACLU and a professor at New York Law School, told me, quote, I massively self-censor. I assume that every single thing that is said, every facial gesture, is going to be recorded and potentially disseminated to the entire world. This is the first woman to run the ACLU. And she says that she self-censors aggressively out of fear. All of this has come as a shock, the story says, to many law professors who had long assumed that law schools wouldn't cave to the new orthodoxy. At a Heterodox Academy panel discussion in December of 2020, Harvard Law School professor Randall Kennedy said that until recently, he thought fears of law schools becoming illiberal, shutting down unpopular views or voices, had been overblown. Quote, I've changed my mind, said Kennedy. I think there is a really big problem. The problem has come not just from students, but from administrators who often foment the forces they capitulate to. Administrators now outnumber faculty at some universities. Yale, for example. And the distinction between diversity, equity, and inclusion and the rest of the administration is often wafer thin. At Yale Law School, the Office of Student Affairs told students in a recent email that they could, quote, swing by the office to grab a critical race theory T-shirt. The T-shirt repeated the phrase reparations and prison abolition five times, Bart Simpson style, before delivering the kicker, critical race theory and Yale Law School. So here's the administration at Yale Law encouraging their students to come get some free T-shirts they had made up that advocate reparations, prison abolition and critical race theory, which are absolutely radical views, but not at Yale Law School where they are seemingly, at least in some way, endorsed by the administration as they try to educate and shape and mold the elite lawyers of tomorrow. Back to the story. As this new ideology has been institutionalized, the costs of disobeying it have grown steeper, both for faculty and for students. At the University of Illinois Chicago, for example, a law professor's classes were canceled and his career threatened for including a bleeped-out N-word on an exam in a hypothetical scenario about discrimination. He had used the same scenario for years without incident. Then he did it again, and the classes were canceled, and his job was threatened. Hypothetical, legal example where the offending word, a terrible word, was bleeped out. That became a career-threatening incident. This is This is crazy. A Harvard law professor tells me that students face, quote, social death if they buck the consensus. Students at other elite law schools, Yale, NYU, Georgetown, Northwestern, told me much the same thing. You want to have friends so you don't say anything controversial, one Georgetown law student explained. At Boston College Law School this semester, a constitutional professor asked students, who does not think we should scrap the Constitution? This is a B.C. law. Show of hands, how many of you law students 
here at this law school believe that we should not scrap the U.S. Constitution and start over. According to a student present in the class, not a single person raised their hand. Now, some of the people obviously didn't believe we should scrap the Constitution, but they were too afraid to admit it in a room full of other law students with some radicals in there who truly believe the Constitution is evil and needs to go. And therefore, you had a room filled with these people, none of whom would admit that they actually support keeping the Constitution of the United States intact. So that's law schools. But what about law firms and the law itself? Those institutions are also being threatened by this same pernicious poison. And I will continue with this piece published by Barry Weiss, written by Aaron Sabarium, when we come back after this break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. We are reading from this piece published by Barry Weiss, written by Aaron Sabarium, which coincides with the whole dust-up, the kerfuffle at Yale Law School, illustrating and chronicling how the hard left, the progressive woke left, is trying to engage in institutional capture, not just in academia, but of the American legal system itself. We just talked about and read from the passages about law schools. What about law firms and the practice of law? Here's what the story writes. The idea that lawyers can't be neutral, that confronting injustice must supersede all else, has eroded the norm that legal representation is something every American deserves. Quote, partners in law firms are being blindsided by associates who they think are liberals in their own image, an attorney in Washington, D.C. told me, but they're not. The associates want to burn the place down. These are older liberal partners with the younger radical associates who want to burn down the institutions. Lawyers at top law firms in New York, D.C., Los Angeles say they fret constantly about saying the wrong thing or taking on the wrong client. Quote, it's much worse than McCarthyism, says Alan Dershowitz, professor emeritus at Harvard Law. McCarthyism, he says, was a reflection of dying old views. They were not the future. But the people today who are imposing litmus tests for who they represent, they are the future. Since 2011, law firms have been pressured to drop or turn down a long list of clients, fossil fuel companies, foreign universities, a GOP-controlled House of Representatives, employers challenging vaccine mandates, and, of course, Donald Trump. These pressures, both internal and external, have had a chilling effect. If defending anti-vaxxers can cost you business, law firms reason, imagine the blowback of defending a transphobe or a racist. Quote, it doesn't even occur to people to take controversial cases, one lawyer in D.C. said. Religious liberties cases, for example, are, quote, totally off the table. I wouldn't even think to bring it up. Another lawyer who specializes in First Amendment litigation described being forced to turn away a client with far-right views because the firm thought any association with the client, even if the claims advanced were meritorious, would be bad for business. Now, I remember, and actually it's an issue in the confirmation hearings right now happening for the Supreme Court nominee, when lefty lawyers raced to represent al-Qaeda terrorists at Guantanamo Bay, citing this grand tradition in American law, all the way back to John Adams, that even deeply unpopular clients need rigorous and deserve and have a right to rigorous representation. 
And they said, we might not like these terrorists, but damn it, we're going to defend them because that's the American way. Those same big law firms and law schools that were cheering on people defending al-Qaeda clients and defendants, and I agree that under our system everyone deserves a defense, they are saying we cannot countenance anyone that we're associated with taking on clients that we find to be unwoke. Now, Islamist terrorists certainly are unwoke, but they sort of have a special carve-out on the woke totem pole of privilege. But, you know, very conservative or right-wing people, that is something that they cannot handle, that they cannot abide. And therefore, these litmus tests occur, and there's a lot of self-censorship and self-selection happening out there. Last note from this piece, published by Barry Weiss. Just a few years ago, the American Bar Association nearly passed a motion that would urge state legislatures to adopt a new definition of consent in sexual misconduct cases that would flip the burden of proof from the accuser to the accused, just turning it on its head, the presumption of innocence. It looked like they were going to pass this motion. A few people then backed away. It failed, but nearly 40% of the American Bar Association, before it's been completely radicalized with a new generation, voted for that proposition. It's not just undergrads, it's not just law students, it is law firms and the law itself. Our fundamental principles and systems under attack by the woke left, which is why we focus on these issues as often as we do. It is a clear and present danger to the republic. We lighten things up next on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Continuing here in the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thank you for tuning in. As promised, it's time for Woke Tales. We have a few examples to bring you that are a bit lighter, still disturbing, but not quite as weighty and sobering as what we just discussed in the last few segments. Here's one via Robbie Suave, writing at Reason.com. There is a queer female author who grew up in a very conservative household in kind of like a doomsday cult type environment. And she's gay. She later joined the military while Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in effect. And she has written a book. She's gone on the speaking circuit. And she was recently informed that she was a finalist. Her book was a finalist for a Lammy Award, L-A-M-M-Y, from the Lambda Literary Foundation, which is an organization for LGBT writers and readers. So she was nominated for this Lammy Award, and she was very excited. Alas, says Robbie Suave, it was not meant to be. Lambda informed this woman, whose name is Lauren Huff, that it had decided to withdraw her nomination due to, quote, Twitter disputes last week. So sorry to pass this news along, wrote a representative for Lambda in an email to Huff. Now, the Twitter disputes in this case involved Huff defending one of her friends, Sandra Newman, who is a young adult fictional novelist and apparently is non-binary, wrote a book called The Men, which ran afoul. The premise of this fictional book upset 
certain very loud transgender activists on social media. And so the extremely radical, narrow, woke mob, and these are some of the most radical people out there, decided to come down hard on this woman, Sandra Newman, for writing this fiction book that they didn't like. And they were calling Newman transphobic. I guess you can be a leftist, non-binary author, but if you write the wrong thing in a fictional book and a premise about men and people with certain chromosomes, you have to be canceled. So the mob was in full throat coming after this woman who Hoff, the woman nominated for a prize, is friends with. So she defended her friend, saying it's not fair to come after her this way. She said, I told them to read the book before condemning it. I told them characters and plot don't necessarily reflect the politics or views of an author. I told them, read the bleeping book or don't. Well, that wasn't good enough. Because she was deemed to be aiding and abetting transphobia by defending her friend for writing the fictional book that she did, the mob then shifted to her. So now the targets were growing. They were expanding. And Lambda caught up in the crossfire here, a bunch of woke, sniveling, terrified radicals themselves. They decided to withdraw the nomination for a Lammy Award from this woman and her book because she was defending another woman or non-binary person and her book against scurrilous, overheated, hysterical charges of transphobia. So this is like a blast radius situation where the mob is trying to explode and destroy one person and even stepping up to defend that person by urging people to not be so sensitive and understand that there has to be artistic license in fiction writing and urging people to actually read a book rather than get mad about something you think you know about. That was deemed a cancelable offense and therefore this Award nomination is gone. And Lauren Huff says, I'm a queer woman, and I was silenced for most of my life. And now here she is, attacked again, this time from her left. And I've said this before, I think some of the people who are most vulnerable to cancellation are people who live in left-wing circles and operate within that orbit. Because if you buy into the left-wing, hardcore, progressive, woke premises on some level, if these are the people that you're constantly tiptoeing around and that's your milieu, you are the closest person where they can grab a club and beat you with it. Which is why everyone over there, seemingly in these types of institutions, constantly walking on eggshells, worried about what they might say, what they might admit, what they might accidentally convey in some way that could blow their lives up. And there's a lot of people just itching to detonate that TNT. Even for people supposedly from their own communities on their own side, even in some cases, their supposed friends. Now, I think we have some of this bad impulse on the right. Of course, we have leftists who come after the right and try to get us canceled. But at least on the conservative side, when leftists show up with pitchforks and torches 
metaphorically or literally. We've got a lot of people on this side willing to vociferously defend us and each other against this stuff. Give us at least a fighting chance. Whereas on the left, once you've been marked for cancellation, people scatter. And all of a sudden you're very alone watching your life and your reputation and your name dragged through the mud by your fellow comrades. Is this a way that you want to live your life? I ask my liberal friends. And if not, you don't have to become conservative necessarily, but you've got to do what Barry Weiss is doing and fight these illiberal people. Here's one more story in the Woke Tales catalog, and it comes to us via Jason Rance. You see him all the time on Fox. He comes on this show. He's got a show on our great affiliate out in Seattle, KTTH. A Seattle group is hosting racially segregated theater performances and has received a hundred grand in tax dollars to support the program. A Seattle-based theater company hosts performances of Shakespeare that are meant to be racially segregated. The organization collectively received over a hundred grand in tax dollars since 2021. The Seattle Shakespeare Company provides year-round performances of Shakespeare. Great. Organizationally, the company says it is committed to being inclusive which requires them to uproot systemic harm by undertaking new practices and continually examining them. Or why don't you just perform Shakespeare? Seattle Shakespeare Company. I know, novel thought. Nope, but this this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the hour, where these institutions captured by the hard left decide that they must performatively fight Injustice, however broadly they define that, with everything that they do, which creates a scenario where there's often a significant departure from the actual mission of the organization. So with this example, in this case, one of the tools to be more inclusive at the theater are hosting performances that are exclusively for the so-called B-I-P-O-C community, black, indigenous, people of color. Or they want segregated audiences. Or they want certain performances only attended by people of color. And they're asking white people, in the name of inclusivity and equity, not to show up. Now, I think legally they probably can't bar white people from buying a ticket and showing up. That would be illegal. Obvious racism, but they are heavily pressuring white people not to attend these inclusive, equitable performances where white people can't be there. And think about it. If you're a white person living in Seattle, do you want to be one of the people who decides to show up and violate this sort of soft but very real enforcement of the rule where people are taking little photos of you, posting it on their Twitter feed or their Instagram story? Look at this racist who decided not to agree with segregation. Do you want that headache? I don't think so. And so we have these so-called brown-out matinees. The most recent one was Sunday, March 13th, where they only want people with certain skin colors to attend performances of Shakespeare plays like Hamlet and As You Like It. Quote, so that Seattle's BIPOC community can come together. 
So this is another example. We've seen this in the academy as well. Enforced modern-day segregation in the name of equity and inclusion and racial justice. It is taking common sense and moral rectitude when it comes to race relations, flipping it 180 and calling that enlightened. And anyone who disagrees, a racist. This is just uh, right down the pipe when it comes to a woke tale story. So thanks and hat tip to Jason Rance for sending it our direction. When we come back, the home stretch on The Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday edition. That's straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts if you miss any of the show from 3 to 6 Eastern. Well, it's absolutely gorgeous weather here in D.C. And with the warmer weather comes a certain season in this town, which is cherry blossoms season. With the beautiful blooming flowers on these trees all along the Potomac River, it's very pretty. And it's so pretty that many, 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 many people want to go look at these trees, look at the cherry blossoms and take photos. And people want to get that little Instagram photo where they've got the cherry blossoms in the foreground and then the Jefferson Memorial in the background. you got the tidal basin. I mean, I feel like someone should just go take that photo and then send it to anyone else who wants it. Feel free to use it. We all know what it looks like. You don't have to crowd down to the waterfront and all take that exact same photograph. But people do it. People like it. I don't begrudge them that experience, but... The traffic is bad. The foot traffic gets crazy. Yesterday, another one of these trucker convoys was coming through. So that really disrupted my commute into the old studio, surrounded by honking trucks. Then you see the waterfront is completely packed. I know Quiet Wyatt enjoys the cherry blossoms, not so much the crowds. And it's interfered with your ability to get Chick-fil-A, which I know uh, you don't want to get between Quiet Wyatt and his Chick-fil-A. He'll turn into War Wyatt real quick. Yes, Guy. It's It's been um, very crowded here in D.C. Ever since the weather started to pick up, there's people planning vacations and clash trips. And so it is. It's D.C. is back. Do you avoid the crowds by taking your constitutionals at 4.30 a.m.? And can you really enjoy the cherry blossoms before the sun is out? Just use your, your the light on your phone and you could just <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> just like throw a filter on there. It'll be fine. Now, speaking of D.C., you pass along, Wyatt, this poll, which I think is ridiculous. They asked the American people about television shows and fictional portrayals of D.C. and politics. And the question was, which one is the most representative or realistic of how D.C. works? And what the number one answer was West Wing. Is that right? Yep, it was West Wing. Are you kidding me? Like, in fairness, confession, I have never seen even a full episode of the West Wing. But I've seen bits of it. I know people who really like it. 
But this is an Aaron Sorkin project that just idealizes Washington, where you have this sort of munificent Democratic president. Of course, he's a Democrat who is just in politics for all the right reasons. And he's surrounded by all these wonderful people with tremendous intellect and motives. And they're all just in it for the public good. And I can tell you that is absolutely not how Washington, D.C. operates. That's not the type of person that politics typically attracts, which is too bad. There's lots of great people in politics in it for good reasons. There's a lot of people who are not. And the West Wing is kind of like a sanitized, airbrushed, center-left dream of what politics ought to be. It is not a reflection of reality. And I think even a lot of fans of West Wing will admit that. Now, some people will argue that House of Cards is more realistic. I'm not sure about that. House of Cards, I mean, House of Cards suggests far too much competence where ruthless, manipulative calculation can achieve ends that the schemers want. But in reality, Washington is much more chaotic and incompetent than that. So I think there are probably people just as bad as the Underwoods, for example, in this town, in positions of significant power. But their ability to get what they want the way that the Underwoods did in that show, not realistic, which brings us to a point that many others have made before. This is not original to me at all. But Veep with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, it's exaggerated. It's not spot on, but it's a lot closer than those other two shows to how Washington really works in politics and the people in politics. It's a lot of self-absorbed, myopic, power-hungry, often incompetent, sometimes comically so, people who play games with each other in a bad way and just sort of careen from one dysfunctional mess to another. That's a lot closer to how D.C. really works. And in fact, the character Selena Meyer, new Selena now, and her various travails as a hapless vice president, they actually do sort of remind a lot of us of a real-life character in that exact position that she played and portrayed in the HBO show. Well, this is real life right now, cut 39. The significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. There is great significance to the passage of time, and that time is every day. Thank you, Madam Vice President. I was talking to a friend last night who said, Kamala Harris, you know, when you're speaking publicly, sometimes you have to gather your thoughts and use filler words before you can get to the point that you want to make. Her observation was Kamala Harris, most of what she says is just filler words, and the result is the mashup that you just heard. A little giggle there at the end. That's a lot closer to Veep than the other shows that I mentioned. I would say West Wing would be at the bottom of the list. 
That's just me. You can agree or disagree. We got to run. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening to the Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.